Hello and welcome to the Thriving Abroad Podcast. I'm Louise Wiles, an expat and transition coach and your host for these conversations with expats and international mobility professionals where we share stories, strategies, tips and tricks to help you build a thriving international life. Now, it's that time of year in the Northern Hemisphere where schools are getting back to reality back to to the normal routine and underway for the new academic year. And for all international schools, there are going to be gaps that have been left by old friends who've moved on in the summer and new arrivals eager to make new friends and build their new social circles. Happiness and excitement at new beginnings and some sadness, I guess, for what has been. Now, in this podcast conversation, I talked to Dr. Sarah White about how we can help expat kids to thrive by developing emotional intelligence and resilience. Now, Sarah works as a consultant, speaker, facilitator and coach. She has a degree in psychology, a master's in education and her doctorate focused on supporting third culture kids with emotional intelligence. Based in Singapore, Sarah works with organisations, international schools and families to equip people with powerful practical skills to boost their resilience and emotional well-being throughout global relocations. So I really hope you enjoy today's conversation. As always, there's a blog post associated with this episode. Go to thrivingworld.com and look for episode 64. You'll find in the blog post the download link for the full transcript if you prefer to read. And also, while you're there, why not sign up for the regular newsletter and keep up to date with all my news and resources to help you build thriving lives abroad. Finally, if you enjoy this episode, before you click off your podcast app, please rate and review the podcast. This will really help me in my quest to raise the profile of this podcast and share the amazing content with more people. Thank you. So, Let's get started. So, hello, Sarah. Really lovely to welcome you to the Thriving Broad podcast today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to be chatting to you. Well, it's great that you're here. Um, So my morning, your afternoons, because Sarah is sitting talking to us from Singapore. I'm sure we're going to hear a bit more about that in a minute. Um, But just to, to start us off, Sarah, and to help people to kind of imagine who you are and um, where you are. Tell us a little bit about your expat experience so far, what's led you to be in Singapore, and a little bit about what you do professionally. Sure, yeah, happy to. So my expat journey started when I was in my late 20s. Um, I was a primary school teacher and was very happy living my life in the UK, but had thought, actually, teaching abroad sounds really appealing. It'd be great to have some teaching experience in an international school, not to mention the opportunities for travel, which, you know, I've never been traveling around Asia before, so that sounded like a great option. Um, so I actually applied for a job at the British International School in Singapore, having never been to Singapore before, <laughs> got the job. <laughs> And just thought, oh, this will be a nice two years, you know, do, do some teaching, um, you know, have a really different experience, slightly different curriculum and have all these experiences living in a different country. And 12 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so <laughs> I can thoroughly recommend Singapore. It's a, it's a great place to live. Um, I met my husband here. He's Australian. 
Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, so my, my teaching experience here was very much, I was a primary class teacher, but I was also head of curriculum for the personal and social curriculum at school. So that's for seven years. And that was really interesting because I got to really, really have some impact in terms of things like friendship skills and conflict resolution, which I very quickly realized was very different in an international school mm-hmm. compared to working in the UK. Now, if you can imagine my school in the UK, I loved it. It was in um, an area where children went to the school, their parents had also gone to in most cases, the grandparents had also gone to the same school. And, you know, we knew whole families, cousins, everybody, they all lived within walking distance of the school. So to get a new child was very unusual. And for a child to leave was also very, very unusual. So contrast that with moving to Singapore in my first <laughs> term, where out of my class of 24, a quarter of the children left to go elsewhere in the first term and I'd also come from an area in the northeast which was you know lots of parents working minimum wage jobs working two jobs to support families to conversations where kids were like oh well this this year we went diving in the Maldives and um <laughs> what did you do this summer and I was like well it wasn't diving <laughs> it, was mov- it was moving country which was quite a shock to the system so all of a sudden had this really different cohort of children, which was really interesting. But what I started noticing was there were quite specific challenges associated with this very high rate of mobility in the community. And that led me to actually um, focus my doctoral thesis on supporting third culture kids with an emotional intelligence intervention, because I wanted to do something that would really help the community that I was working in. But in the end, what that meant was I actually ended up moving into self-employment into, into my own business. So I now work as a consultant, a facilitator, a speaker, and I'm an accredited coach with ICF. And my focus is really all about equipping people with simple strategies, but powerful strategies to build their resilience and their well-being to really help them thrive. And part of what I do is focusing on well-being and resilience in, in the context of relocation, particularly for families um, and particularly supporting children. Because certainly when I was reading for my doctorate, I was quite surprised at how little research there was in the area and also, you know, the kind of lack of resources at that time for supporting families with essentially what is quite a disruptive thing and quite difficult to deal with in lots of ways. Fantastic. Right. So that's great. Thank you for that introduction. So we're going to pull on all that experience and expertise now. <laughs> Excellent. Because <laughs> I've got a feeling you've got quite a lot to share with us about how we can better support children. I I totally agree. Having lived in Portugal and international schools, I've I've seen exactly that, that whilst everyone was experiencing this kind of mobile life and quite high rate of transition and change, there wasn't a huge amount um, of support for that. So I'm really interested to talk more about this and and how we Mm. can better support our kids through it. So let's just start. um, Sorry, sorry, Louise, if I can just add in at this point as well, I think, I don't know what your experience was, but certainly my experience as a teacher and from other parents is it's, it's, 
quite amazing how quickly people accept this as a status quo is that oh we move a lot people leave a lot but that's just the way things are here um mm. I don't know what your experience was with that but I certainly thought well that doesn't sound right there's got to be something else we can actually do to support a bit better and international schools I think are in such a good position to actually support families with that and um, my my take on it was always I think we could actually help a little bit more with this. Yes, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, and I think there was often this kind of assumption that the support was there. But for me, it's interesting, isn't it? Because also, I, I'm just, as you said that, I was just thinking about that kind of cycle every year when it gets to summer and people the last term and, you know, the kids are preparing to leave. And it was mm. always a, a process that we were all going through and chuntering about. So for those of us who were staying, we'd be sad to be seeing people going and having to adjust to the fact that they weren't going to be there um, mm. and seeing them withdraw as well which I think was often quite a surprising thing for me that they were mm. you know people psychologically begin to withdraw from from you and your from their friendships I think sometimes as well mm. so you, uh, stayers were experiencing that whereas the goers were experiencing their range of challenges around moving on um, but we weren't really talking about it it was just kind of oh, well, this is this is it this is how it is and the same with the school so yes really interested to talk more about this so mm. um let's start then by so that that's one of the challenges I guess you know that point every year that happens when kids kids are leaving but let's talk a bit more about the challenges that you as a teacher and a professional worker in this area have, have seen um working in an international school yeah sure i think um certainly one thing that came through in the research and it's really interesting reading about this having been a teacher because every sort of piece of evidence or every story i immediately could connect that to a child that i taught you know, that, 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 like you say, like withdrawing from friendships. I could immediately picture um, girls that had happened to who were like, well, I'm moving, so I need to find a new best friend. So we can still be friends, but we're not best friends anymore. And I was like, yeah. the amount of upset this causes. And I'm just thinking, right, you know, look, as a teacher, I'm trained in how to teach children how to read and how to support with writing and how to extend writing and how to teach math. But nobody has trained me in this. Um, so it was really an interesting process going through the whole doctorate. Mm. And one of the things that came out in that research is one of the big issues for children who grew up internationally is unresolved grief. And that's basically when, if you think about grief, it sounds really dramatic but when you look at the definition of grief, it's really about a normal and natural reaction to loss and change. And if you think about these mobile lifestyles that many of us lead, they are absolutely characterized by so much loss and change, and it's constant. You know, like in international schools, you've basically got that end of the year where it's just a huge disruption. There's so much loss and there's so much change and everyone's just trying to deal with that and cope with that as best they can. So this issue of unresolved grief um, is basically when those feelings around loss and change of losing friends, of moving on and leaving somewhere behind are when that feeling of grief hasn't been processed. So typically what I hear from children is that their parents will say to them, oh, it's, and we know it's hard moving, but let's just focus on the positives. Let's mm -hmm. focus on the really good stuff. Um, yeah, you'll miss your friends, but you'll make new friends. And I think 
parents are missing a really valuable opportunity there just to focus on how children actually feel and let them process that grief and talk about being sad. There's a real misconception among parents that talking about grief makes it worse when in fact the opposite is actually true. It's vital to talk about it because children need to process it, to make sense of it. And it's only when you've moved through that feeling that you can put it to one side and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on now. Um, when that's unresolved, that can lead to issues later on. Not for all children, but certainly that can be an issue. So that's definitely a really important thing for parents to be focusing on, I would say. Yes, definitely, definitely. And I've experienced that personally and seen it many, many mm. times too. So, mm. I, yeah. And, and what did you, what do you notice? I mean, thinking about children of different ages. So mm. um, do you notice and have you noticed them coping with or facing different challenges, different sets of challenges at these points of transition? Yeah, I think age has a lot to do with how easy or difficult they find the transition. So typically teenage years, 12 to 15, are the trickiest Mm -hmm. time to move. And, you know, ideally you wouldn't move at that time, but life is far from perfect. (laughs) And sometimes Mm -hmm. moving is not a choice. Sometimes it's, you know, the best time to go. But I think for parents of teens to recognise that's a difficult time because children are starting to really you know, put together their identity based on their peer group and their friendships and Mm -hmm. to suddenly change um, and move from a place where they're known and they fit into the social structures is quite a big thing for them. For younger children, what, you know, we're talking about, you know, up to five-year-olds, they don't tend to have a lot of concept of time or distance. So you'll move country, but they'll say, oh, can my friend come round to play? You know, and you might be in the UK and your friend's in Malaysia and you're like, well, no, they're in Malaysia. And they go, oh, okay, right, okay. And they, mm-hmm. I think the younger children are, the more they tend to have very random, you know, outbursts of grief. So everything seems fine. I think if you think about an adult, we tend to think about grief as starting as very intense and gradually, gradually, gradually easing up until we can live with it. But with children, it's there one minute, it's not the next. They'll go off and play. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just recognising that children express this differently depending on their developmental stage. And it's important to recognise it for what it is. Um, mm-hmm. Because, of course, because of their ages, they're going to have a different experience in terms of moving. And if they've had a great friendship group, if you've lived in a place for a long time, all of these things make it harder for them to move. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, Yeah. yeah. And mm. um, going back to at the beginning, you were talking about um, some of the challenges around conflict resolution, conflict re- mm. resolution, and I'm just really interested to, you know, for you that was very different, obviously, from the school in Newcastle, and um, you know, small school where kids knew each other and families knew each other, to um, international schools. So, so, what were the differences you observed and the challenges you see international children facing in that respect? Yeah, so it's, it's quite well documented in the third culture code literature that conflict resolution is a bit of an issue for third culture kids because they don't really see the need for it. Um, mainly because sooner or later, rather, that other person will leave or you will. <laughs> and there's also a lot of new people coming in. So if you fall out with one friend, well, you can go and be friends with somebody else. Mm. Um, 
so it's a skill that I think international schools and parents really need to emphasize and to focus on because you know it could be the it could be the case that okay it's an easier way to deal with it when you're a child but we know as adults in the workplace in our lives we don't always work with people that we get on with um you know it, and it's it can, we might have issues with people and so learning those skills are such valuable life skills I think it's really important. If you contrast that to my school in the UK, those children went together from the age of three to 11 and a lot of them went to secondary school together. So really there was an emphasis on you have to get this sorted out because you're going to be together for years. (laughs) And if it's not sorted out, it's going to make life pretty difficult for everybody. So Mm. I think that's the difference is that that transience of international schools does lend itself to avoiding you know resolving any conflicts because it's uncomfortable it's not nice to resolve arguments and perhaps admit that you made a mistake or you didn't handle things as well as you could no Mm. one likes doing Mm. that it's not it's not pleasant um but it is important it is an important skill to learn so yeah Yeah. that's something i'd really emphasize for those international parents and for teachers in international schools as well yeah and that kind of makes me think about just kids seeing relationships as transient as well so not having to put the effort you know oh, that that person's moved on now so we'll just forget about them and move on to the next one and not mm. thinking about relationships as as continuous that okay the person doesn't need to actually be in front of me to still be a friend and I think I think I've seen that in the literature too you know about mm. how that develops in that evolves into adulthood where where you know for longer term relationships is a challenge because oh well you know after three or four years when things got a bit difficult well I just let that one go and moved on and so mm. parents you know perhaps people have a, a problem um connecting and, and and perpetuating a relationship whether it's a mm. really close personal one or, or or a broader friendship one yeah mm. but if you think about the the amount of time it takes to develop a close relationship mm. obviously if you've got children in international schools it's very unusual that children who are friends in nursery will stay at the same school together through to the age of 18 yeah Um, and obviously just that lack of proximity makes it really difficult to develop that depth and that trust in those relationships um i don't have an answer for that one unfortunately i think i think it's 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 a, diff- it's a difficult one because of the circumstances. There isn't really the opportunity to, de- to develop that depth. But what I would say is it's important, again, that conflict resolution is important. So we're not just throwing away relationships just because things mm. are a bit tricky. Um, and it's also being open to new friendships as well. And I certainly see that more with adults than I do with children is that like, well, I don't really want to make new friends because they're mm. going to leave and that's mm. really painful. So I only, I will only make friends with people who I know are here long-term. Mm. Um, you know, if they're here for a year, I'm not going to bother it's interesting because because people come for a year I came for two years I'm still here 12 years later (laughs) whereas other people I know who had no intention of leaving one partner got a great job offer and all of a sudden they move where they never Mm. intended to leave so I just think you just never know what's going to happen um and it's a it's a shame to close yourself off to those amazing friendships and those opportunities just because people aren't necessarily going to be here very long. I think you know, yeah. the richness of the friendship and the support and the trust that you build, the grief when they leave is the price that you pay for that. 
Mm. And it's just working out if it's worth it for you. It is yeah. for me. I, I think it's worth it. Um, but it is difficult. And, it, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard when people leave. And I think even as adults, we certainly experience that grief as well. Um, mm -hmm. and that loss and, and we notice it when people aren't there anymore whether you move on yourself or whether you're a long-term stayer and people move around you yeah yeah I definitely relate to that and I think actually one, one of the thoughts now having moved back to the UK and sort of having collected <laughs> a, a lovely group of friends who are just unfortunately scattered all over the world what I mm. discover is when we do get back together again it's like the clocks just go back because I know you were talking about depth of relationship there, but I think there is a shared aspect of expat life and the support that you provide to each other, which often is more in depth than perhaps in your own country, because in your own country, you've got your normal support networks and your family, longer term friends, whereas abroad you don't. So you rely on those expat friends perhaps yeah. more than you would other short-term friends in your home country. So that yeah. develops a much deeper connection, I think, and a shared experience that means when you do meet up again, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, yeah, that connection is, is still there and still deep, I find, anyway. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. Which is lovely. Um, so that's one of the benefits. <laughs> I, it I is, think. it is. Yeah. And I think just being around people who understand the challenges as well, because it's really easy for people who are, who've stayed in my home country, for example, to look at my Facebook page and be like, oh, wow, you have this really amazing, glamorous life. And you're like, well, it, it, it's not representative of how my life really is. I'm mm -hmm. not on Facebook saying, oh, this is really hard. People are leaving. Um, that's, not, that's not how I choose to, to post on social media, but maybe we should mm -hmm. be doing that. <laughs> so we're giving people a more representative idea of what it's about. But I think yeah. you're right in yeah. that, you know, that, that your friends as an expat almost take the place of your family in terms of support. And there is that depth because I think certainly in Singapore, it's interesting, friends in Singapore who moved to Australia and they're like, you know, we just assumed it would be like Singapore where everyone was like, oh, come along, come and meet our friends, come to a barbecue, come, you know, mm -hmm. very welcoming, come and join the group because it's always good to have new friends because people always yeah. leave. Um, we're going to Australia where most people have grown up there and already have their friends and have their family. Like, it's a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. And I found that coming mm. back to the UK too. So, you know, I'm mm. in an area where people have lived here for generations, a bit like your Newcastle, so, you know, not mm. quite that extreme. But actually, <laughs> in some senses, it is. You know, and a lot of people, for example, I have a group of tennis people I play with, and they've lived in this area all their lives. So mm. they're, you know, they're, they're lovely, but they have very established lives and friendship groups. Um, and it does take time to settle back it in. Does. So that's an issue for repatriation. <laughs> and that's another <laughs> yeah. conversation. But... Um, so just, just, just one final question around challenges at the moment. So given the pandemic and where we are at the mm. moment, have you noticed any specific challenges that students and you know, teachers are facing in relation to that? Yeah, I think a lot of people with the pandemic, there are a lot of quite abrupt relocations happening. Mm. So perhaps people didn't intend to leave, but there's been a job redundancy and they've had to leave. Or we know quite a few people who are like, we don't want to be isolated from family. This has made us think we don't want to be here right now. We want to be around our family. And so we're going to move back to the UK or back to Australia or back to wherever our home country is. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's hard because it's, 
it's pretty it's pretty quick and I think normally you have a bit of a run-up to leaving so that plus the physical distancing measures that are in a lot of places so in Singapore for example we can have a meal in a restaurant but we're limited to a group of five at the minute mm. so having those limited group sizes, having schools being closed, having exams cancelled, all of this adds up to the leavers really missing out on all the rituals and routines which signify the end of their time in that place and that they're moving on to another place. So international schools often do this very well. Goodbye assemblies. Um, I know we, we attend many leaving parties, people who are moving on. It's a chance for everyone to get together and mark the occasion. Um, if you think about international schools with their graduations, something to mark the end of the year. I know that international schools have done a really brilliant job of doing as much of that online as possible but it's not the same as doing it in person. So I think just to, to recognise that that adjustment to moving at this time, because people have missed out on a lot of the usual pieces of the jigsaw that would really help them to feel more adjusted to leaving, um, it's really important just to take the time and process those feelings and you know say your goodbyes in a way that works for you given the restrictions that we're all facing right now um yeah. and people have got really creative with this you know graduation <laughs> ceremonies online or you know you see um there's been plenty of things on social media people driving past friends houses when it's parties and you know waving at them and things so i think there are definitely things that can be done to market but it definitely makes it more difficult that's yeah. um, an added challenge, I would say, if you're, if you're leaving. And even if you're being left, because saying goodbye to the people who are leaving is as important for you as it is for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess starting a new term and the gaps in the classroom, it will be quite poignant, I, remember, I imagine, this year, you know, that people, if people have disappeared over the summer um, yeah, holiday, month, holiday months, depending on which hemisphere you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yeah, for, obviously for the schools who had their summer break in July and August, that for many countries was when things were really hitting a peak. Mm. Or you know, those physical distance measure, physical distancing measures were really in place. So yeah, just really unfortunate timing in terms of coinciding with the end of the year. Uh, people moving on, needing to yeah. say goodbye. So I think, yeah, just just important to recognise that that is an extra challenge, mm. and mm. to to pay attention to that and to talk about that and to recognise that it's difficult and you might have missed out on saying goodbye and that saying goodbye might not have looked the way you thought it would when yeah. you finally came to leave. Um, yeah. And it's important. I just think it's important to acknowledge that. Even just acknowledging that is really vital in that mm. process. Mm, mm. yeah no I totally agree totally agree so um your doctorate looked at emotional intelligence and you call it the title was thinking about our feelings so I'm really interested to talk a little bit to with you about how you know how we can develop emotional intelligence in schools and the value of emotional resilience um in in helping children to thrive through the international experience. So mm. can you talk a little bit about why emotional intelligence matter, and emotional resilience matter so much and how we can use that knowledge? So this is a massive question. I know it's probably the whole of your thesis. But, uh, 
yeah, just three hours later. Yes. <laughs> three, three hours later. So just to recap on your question, it's how how we can teach emotional intelligence and emotional resilience, and also why it's important. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So let, yes. let me yes. let me yes. answer the first one first, and um, on emotional intelligence and emotional resilience. Now, this is something which typically teachers in any context don't have training on. I didn't get trained on this. Um, I did external training and started to train people in this myself. And the feedback I always get from teachers is, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, why, why have we not done this sooner? Because mm-hmm. it's things like um, giving children emotional vocabulary is part of it. Um, teaching children what to do with uncomfortable feelings, how to process them, what to actually, you know, the process to follow to work through those feelings. You can start to engage the rational part of your brain. Um, the re- there's two elements to it, I always think. There's the court element, which is how teachers are modelling this and how teachers are talking about this. Um, and that comes down to things like when you are dealing with an argument that's happened in the classroom or some kind of conflict resolution again, what language are you using around emotions and how they're impacting the situation? But there's also the taught part as well, which is how are you teaching children the skills of emotional intelligence? And it can be done through different curriculum areas. English is a really good one. You know, it's something that can be woven into um, studying books and studying characters. But for that to happen, teachers need to be taught in this, need to be trained in it, because it's not something you would necessarily just pick up. Um, and not realize, you know, not realize that you've picked it up and think, oh, well, that's, I've just sort of learned to do that on the job. It is definitely something that's worth having the training on. Um, and certainly for the emotional resilience, um, I always talk about that as being, it's how well we deal with adversity and how, deal, how well we deal with challenges and changes was very much an emotional focus. So I think what's, what's interesting with that is, there tends to be an assumption that children are resilient naturally. And I hear this a lot from parents, from teachers. Oh, but children are really resilient. They just bounce back. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure where this has come from because some children are resilient and some are less so. Um, I did a really interesting diploma all about neuroscience and Dr. Sarah Mackay, who, who runs this course, talked about, dandelions and orchids in terms of resilience she said there are genetic differences in resilience so if you think about dandelions in the uk they're basically a weed but they can grow and flourish and thrive anywhere no matter what the conditions so if you equate that to resilience you've got your children who are resilient no matter what high resilience that that's just the way they are the orchids however not so much in Singapore, we have the exact perfect climate for them, but the or- orchid- orchids tend to require quite careful nurturing and quite specific conditions to flourish. And that, again, relates to those children who maybe have a little bit less resilience naturally. They're going to need a little bit more support with that. Um, and I think it's, it's also important to remember that resilience is not this fixed state that it can be really impacted by challenges and by adversity. Because if you have a small challenge, it's probably going to give your resilience a little bit of a knock. But if you're facing challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge, your resilience is really taking a battering. 
So you've really got to think about how you're actually going to you know, help with that and what you can do to actually protect um, your resilience. Now, again, for parents and for teachers, it's really helpful when we think about children or teenagers. They're going to have a very different opinion on what an adversity or a challenge is to you as an adult. And that's all mm. right, because even if you don't think it's a big deal, they do. Um, and it's got a lot to do with brain development. Um, Daniel Segal has an amazing brain model all about the downstairs brain and the upstairs brain. Basically talks about the downstairs brain as being very much, you know, the emotional reaction, the fight or flight response um, when children will argue or freeze or withdraw. And the upstairs brain is very much the higher order thinking, the reasoning, um, being rational. But that upstairs brain isn't fully formed until people are about 25. So a lot of the time, our children and young people are very much ruled by emotion, by, you know, <laughs> automatic reaction. Um, and they can be really upset. And parents are like, I don't, I don't understand what the problem is. Why are you so, <laughs> are you so upset about that? <laughs> but I think it's just really important for all, for all of us in terms of de developing that resilience is to model the process, to model how we get through you know, facing challenges and adversity. And what I always recommend is absolutely listening and making sure we're connecting with empathy. So rather than telling children how they should feel about it, just recognizing how they do feel. If they're like, you know, I got left out of a game at lunchtime rather than saying, oh, I know how that feels or, oh, just ignore them. You don't need them try just putting yourself in their shoes and say, well, that must, that must have been hurtful. That must have been disappointing for you. How, model the language for younger children. Older teenagers can often explain how they feel if they're, if they're chatting to you about it. But then actually giving them the opportunity to come up with solutions to their own challenges is really vital, partly because it's helping to develop that upstairs brain and it's helping to develop all those skills of decision making and rational thinking and, um, you know, actually exercising and making those connections in that part of the brain. But also because they might come up with solutions that you would never have thought of. And it's good for them to realize that they, they have choice and they have several options and several paths they could choose to go down to solve the problem. Um, and that's part of an optimistic outlook as well, which again comes back to emotional intelligence. So there's a lot of advantages in developing that, that emotional resilience aspect for sure. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. As I listen to you speak, it all seems so just not obvious, but just so sensible. And, I, and as, as a parent, I think one of the things as a parent, you want to make things better for your children. Um, yeah. But what I'm hearing you say is that actually give them the space to make it better for themselves in a way by mm. thinking it through, sharing with you, but um, finding their own way forward. Would that be a good summary yeah. of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I'm, I don't think I ever fully understood this until I was a parent myself, but you absolutely would do anything to stop your children being miserable. But I think that short-term solving things for them actually does them a little bit of a disservice long-term because, mm -hmm. again, you're missing the opportunity to help them develop those 
those skills, those, those executive functioning skills to think, well, how do I actually solve this? Because yeah. you're not always going to be there. You're not in the, in the yard at school. You're not there when they're playing football or hockey. You're not there in the classroom when something's happening. So the more you can sort of coach them through this and talk them through this process, the better their skills will become over time. And it's so hard so hard to stand back and um, and let them do things. I see that with my baby actually falls over and I'm like, well, I must help her straight away. But actually, her learning how to get herself up, she needs to learn how to do that. Um, and it's hard. It's totally hard to do it. But I think as a parent, recognising it's difficult and recognising your own feelings about that is also part of the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And that's... I think that's such a good analogy because physic, you know, watching our children develop from a physical perspective when they're young, we do know, okay, as long as they're not in any danger, that, yeah, let's let them discover how to get themselves back up or how to do whatever physical activity they're trying to do um, and work it out themselves or just guide them gently but not do it for them. But when it comes Mm. to the emotional side of life, we're there, oh, let's gather them up and hug them and make it all better for them but so often I think definitely like gather them and hug them is essential I think providing Mm -hmm. that comfort is really really important because acknowledging the feelings first is a really important first step you can't have a conversation about problem solving when they're still in a very emotional state and anybody Mm -hmm. who's had young children will see this straight away you know you can't just tell them to calm down and they do it it's really (laughs) talking about you lost your ball you're upset and you know have a have a cuddle and once they've calmed down that's the time then to talk about how they might solve the problem and what what they might do to make it better Um, and of course there's some guidance involved in that that's absolutely absolutely fine because parents have that experience but Mm. certainly like Mm. you say just give them some space give them some time that um the thing i always hear from parents is but this always seems to happen when i'm in a hurry it's always at bedtime or it's always when I'm dropping them off in the car or it's always when we're running late. Um, and I think it's, you know, if you can deal with it then and there, great. If you can't, I mean, particularly for younger children, because they tend to have very short attention spans and you try and come back to it and they don't know what you're talking about. Certainly as your children get older, it's definitely something you can come back to at a later stage. Yeah. And check in yeah. with them yeah. and say, oh, remember what we talked about and, and how's that going? And did you try the solution? How well did it work? And would you do mm. the same thing mm. again? Mm. Really just asking mm. them questions about how they've, how they've found that works and how well it's worked for them. It's yeah. so valuable. It's so valuable for them. Yeah. And actually, yeah. at the end of the day as a parent, it actually makes your life easier too because you're bringing up your child to be emotionally resilient, which is such a good skill. And yeah the more resilient they get the more independent they'll be with that which is perfect that's you know that's your aim right is to have children who can be independent and self-sufficient in the world and that emotional part like you say just like the physical part that's all part of it yeah yeah and I think that just brings me to my last question which I just wanted to say you know as I know parents will be listening to to this you know what what lessons can parents take from this and apply Mm. to to their lives and the way in which they deal with with tough situations challenging situations and transition which I guess is a common theme in these kind of conversations I think so I think it's um a lot of the strategies for parents are actually the same strategies that I would recommend for children obviously Mm. you're going to have slightly different conversations around those so 
when we're, when we're talking about relocation, recognizing that it is a process, um, it's very emotional. And the emotional transition part of it takes a lot longer than the physical move. If you think about flights now, you can be in a completely new country within 24 hours, most places. Um, but the emotional transition takes a lot longer. Um, one thing that I do, you know, I do have for mainly for parents to use with children, I do have some coaching cards about moving country, which basically have conversation starters, which focus on each stage of the move with descriptions of each stage, depending on where you are. And while I did develop them for children primarily, quite a few parents have said to me, actually, we've used these with each other. I, my husband and I, my wife and I, we used them with each other. And we've had conversations that we'd never have thought of having, but it's actually been really helpful to get an insight into how we're coping and how things are going for us. So that's been, um, that's been very helpful. I think um, for parents as well, you know, it's such a good lesson for your children, really to have that self-compassion it's all right not to be all right with this. It's okay to find things hard and just give yourself a bit of time and space to notice and process your difficult feelings as well. So we talk about resilience and a lot of people think of resilience as doing something new. I, I'm going to start to meditate or I have to go and exercise or I have to do this. But sometimes it's really about doing less, you know, taking some time, cancelling all the busy plans that you have, just, you know, spending some time with your children, sitting on the sofa watching film, just making a bit of space and a bit of time. Um, I know you talked about your support network as well, um, and whether they're in the same country as you or somewhere else, to really use your support network and not be, you know, if you, if you can, it's difficult. And Brené Brown talks about this a lot, but really embracing your own vulnerability and recognizing mm. that move, moving is a very vulnerable time, whether you're seven or whether you're 37 or whether you're 57, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to do. So really use your support network, reach out and let them know you're finding things difficult. And then, you know, that's what they're there for. And you would do the same for them, but people don't always realize you're finding things difficult. Sometimes you just need to let them know. So that would be certainly my, my recommendations for parents. Brilliant. And yeah, I've kind of wrapped all of this up in a book that I'm putting together at the minute, which gives parents a lot of practical tips on how they can support their whole family throughout a move. But it's all wrapped up as a story format. So hopefully easy to read rather than just lots of instructions about what to do and when to do it. So story <laughs> of a family who are moving themselves, the challenges they're facing, um, getting some great advice from mentors and how to approach things and um, the best way to actually move forward with their children and for themselves. Wow, that sounds fantastic. So when is that, when is that due to come, be available, come out? Yeah, so I'm aiming to publish at the start of November. Okay. So the okay. updates will be on my website and social media. So if people are interested in that, they can sign up to be notified once it's out. Um, so Brilliant. yeah, if people are interested in that, definitely take a look and just send me your name so I can keep you informed. Okay, brilliant. Well, I will put links to all of that and also the coaching cards on the blog post associated with this episode. So go and have a look at that, thrivingabroad.com, and you'll see the links all there. Um, so, Sarah, one final question to wrap up. Um, yeah. So you've lived abroad now for 
12 years I think you've given us quite a lot of tips that probably link into this question but I would like yes. to finish with it <laughs> so if there was one number one tip um, that you would share about what it takes to thrive abroad what would it be Absolutely. Well, the short answer is obviously emotional resilience. <laughs> obviously, <laughs> obviously going to say that, of course. Um, but the explanation behind that is living overseas often means that you li- you're living in an environment, a social environment, which is constantly changing. So there are constant goodbyes happening, but there are also constant hellos to new people who might turn out to be really good friends. And we know from the research that social connection is totally vital to our well-being. But as I said before, people are like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to go through this again. It's very easy to get fatigued when you've moved a lot or if you've been, you know, here in you know, one place a long time and people have moved around you. And it's easier to avoid sometimes meeting new people or only focusing on people who you think are going to stay long term. But what I would say to people is just, be careful with that because you miss out on so many lovely experiences and so many really valuable friendships. And as I said, that, that grief when friends leave is the price you pay for those amazing friendships, <laughs> which is where that emotional resilience really comes into play because that's a vital part of dealing with the way you feel about that so we can continue to put ourselves out there and be proactive and make social connections and make friends because, you know, people leave all the time in different overseas postings. So it's really important that you're constantly proactive, really practicing your resilience and continuing to, you know, proactively tend to your social network. Fantastic. And I would so totally agree <laughs> from my experience <laughs> of moving so number of times and, and, you know, having to reestablish networks and, that fatigue I can totally relate to but mm. every time the friendships have come back you know and and ah the, the the experiences and the positive aspects of those experiences have all been down to the friendships so um, yeah without a doubt yeah people are such a, a big part of your experience I think when you live away mm. from your home country and from your family like we said before that your friends almost become your family they become your support network um, and you know you can choose to avoid the grief and the loss when they leave but that also means you miss out on all the really good stuff as well yeah yeah so brilliant a, a decision to make isn't it <laughs> it is it is but an easy one I think <laughs> so, <laughs> me too yeah no, so thank you so much, Sarah. That has been a, a fantastic conversation. I think we've covered a huge amount of ground with some really great, great advice and strategies there. So I hope everyone has enjoyed the conversation. And once again, go to thrivingbroad.com and look for the links to Sarah's website and the coaching card she's spoken about. So thank you very much for your time today, Sarah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. And thank you so much for listening. Remember to access links and the full transcript from this conversation. Go to thrivingbull.com and look for episode 64. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the regular podcast newsletter so I can get keep you up to date with all the podcast news and Thriving Abroad resources. Thank you once again to Sarah for sharing your amazing expertise and insights. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and got so much from it so thank you so much i'll be back soon with the next episode in the thriving board podcast series 
Meanwhile, take care and stay well wherever you are in the world. Bye-bye for now.